back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's time for Keeping Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Monday, the ninth day of May. Now, allow me to apologize beforehand because honestly, I have no idea what the hell is going on. I've had this cough that seemingly will not go away. It's not. It's not a cold. It's not the flu. It's not you know COVID or anything like that. Just for like. Three weeks now, <coughs> excuse me, see, there it is. I've had this cough that seemingly just will not go away. The weird thing is it, it always seems like it's worse on Tuesdays for some reason. And that's, you know, the day after I do this, but before I go back to work for the week. So, I don't know, I'll try to make the best of it. Hopefully this podcast this week does not turn into one big giant cough fest uh, for the next hour here. We're now plenty to talk about, mixing some NFL thoughts, some baseball as we go on. <coughs> but of course, going to talk about the NBA playoffs, which yes, I am still 100% fully invested. And no, I am not going to take the bait that Kyrie Irving tried to set for me last week because you know, he's a waste of my time and don't want to even think of him until the uh, offseason begins because there's more important stuff going on. It is a very fascinating semifinals, second round, whatever you want to refer to it in the NBA postseason where every series – a has been competitive, which you like. We're not getting any sweeps. Doesn't I don't even think we're going to get a gentleman's sweep in this, which is you know the favorite wins the series in five games. But every series has had fascinating dis- storylines, post game discussions about coaching strategies, coaching decisions, and none more so than uh, the Heat versus uh, the Seventy Sixers, where. You know, going into the series, the 76ers were going to be without Joel Embiid. The question was going to be, how long and how could they manage it? Because when you're the underdog in a series, I don't know how much of an underdog you want to call the Philadelphia 76ers, but being that they were going to be without Embiid to at least start the series, it was going to hinder their chances, hinder their opportunity against um, the Heat. And you saw in these first two games, not just that Bam Adebayo had a field day and was just wrecking the game in the paint, 
But the pro- the biggest problem with Doc Rivers over the course of his career has always been his stubbornness, his unwillingness to change, and the fact that he'll remain too loyal to certain guys. And I get DeAndre Jordan has had a very good NBA career. But the guy's been a hindrance on the floor. And not just for his foul shooting, which has troubled him his entire career. But he was a a non-factor. The fact that, you know, essentially you're playing five versus four basketball at sometimes maybe even five versus three. And I'll get to that in a second. Excuse me. But in game one, you look at it, DeAndre on the floor, the Heat were scoring 50 points in 17 minutes. In the time that he was off the court, the Heat scored 56 points in 31 minutes. So when the 76ers decided to go small and take uh, DJ off the court, they were playing a competitive brand of basketball. But with DeAndre out there, it was a mismatch. And I don't get, listen, I know at times players will also be loyal to a T in a locker room. You know, you like a guy, you want to show support by him. And you're not going to just outright come out and say, oh, this guy's trash, get him off the court. Because no one has that kind of power that um, on this team, especially that you know, Michael had or Kobe or LeBron where they can just order the coach around and tell him to uh, get a guy off the court. But how the locker room can look themselves in the mirror and say, oh, DeAndre Jordan being out there gave us the best chance to win in game one and two is beyond me. And you saw this series turned around as soon as, not just they got back to the city of brotherly love, But as soon as they got Joel Embiid back in the mix. And I figured that he was going to do everything possible to be able to play in games three and four. This wasn't, you know, the back problems or foot problems that have hindered him in his career. This was going to be about pain tolerance. As long as he could clear concussion protocol, as long as... He could withstand pain and the the mask wasn't too much of a hindrance for him. You figured that you were going to get something out of Joel Embiid. And the two things that impressed me, A, playing 36 minutes, because when you're in concussion protocol, you can't do anything. You're not working out. You're not working on your endurance and not allowing you to run. You're essentially put on ice for the the time you're on the protocol. So for him to go, you know, over a week without doing anything and then come out there and play 36 minutes and play relatively effective basketball. I mean, the numbers don't jump off the screen to you as far as his offensive stat line, especially with the standard he set this year. But you look at his defense against Bam Adebayo in game three to 
calm him down. Plus, you know, they were able to make up for it offensively. James Harden was good in the first half, kind of disappeared in the second half of game three. But Danny Green, you know, we've seen this in the past. Um, no matter where he's been, you know, he'll occasionally have nights like this in the postseason. That's why Greg Popovich loved him with the San Antonio Spurs. And he made a bunch of threes on Friday night to keep uh, the Sixers' hope alive. And last night, finally, about damn time, James Harden, you step up and have a big game for the 76ers. You, you were not traded there or looked upon as a guy that they're going to give $50 million a year this coming offseason just to be a complimentary piece, just to be a role player, be the you know fourth best player on the Sixers. Last night, you saw an aggressive assertiveness from James Harden in tying back up the series. You start to see a little bit of the Houston James Harden. It's a shame that the headline on ESPN.com today reads, you know, Harden turns back the clock. I mean, he's only 32 years old, but that's you know, where we've got him with James Harden, where he's gotten himself out of shape. He has not played to the level that we expect him to play since going to the 76ers, since forcing his way out of uh, Brooklyn. And now when you mix that, having Embiid back, it puts everybody back in uh, their roles does not force Doc Rivers to play DeAndre Jordan. He's been a uh, coach's decision DNP these last two games and has allowed the 76ers to tie this series up. And now, now what's interesting is motivation has been added for Joel Embiid because all year long, he's thought he should be the league MVP. Well, this morning... Uh, Nikola Jokic was named the league MVP for the second year in a row. And we have seen in the past when Embiid has a cause to play for, when he has some kind of message to send, especially uh, what was it either last year or the year before when uh, Barkley and Shaq were calling him out on TNT and that lit a fire up his ass and he started putting up 30 every night. We've seen when this guy is motivated, he can do um, even uh, more special things. Now, the the thing about it is this series goes back to uh, Miami. And, you know, with the Heat, you're hopeful these 48 hours in between games get Kyle Lowry a little bit healthier because he's been a non-factor for the Heat. And Bam Adebayo being at home will be more comfortable against Joel Embiid than he was up in the city of brotherly love. But there, this looks like a seven-game series. Hell, we'll see tonight if Buck Celtics turns into a uh, seven-game series there. And what's going to be fun to watch tonight is two things. One, do the referees overreact to the post-game commentary from uh, not just the Boston Celtics, but from Marcus Smart in general. Because you watch the final play, 
were the final sequence of that game on Saturday afternoon. That should have been a three-shot um, attempt at foul shots there for Smart. It should have been him going to the line for three of them. I'm not sure what the refs were looking at. It, this was not, you know, that they've instituted the new rule where you can't jump into the defender. Now that you can't commit what they call a non-basketball play to try and get the three-point uh, foul shot opportunity. He went straight up and up and down. Was in the beginning of his shooting motion. I, not for the life of me, I could not understand how they thought that was just a common two-shot foul there. And hell, you could argue that moments before that, that the Celtics should have had the ball instead of down by three after the two foul shots by um, Drew Holiday on the other end, you sh could argue that it should have been only a one-point deficit for them when you consider that probably should have been an offensive uh, foul called by against Holiday with the slight shove he had against Tatum. Tatum, who had just a miserable game. I'll get to him in, in a second. But... Probably should have been an offensive foul, give, given the Celtics the ball back and sent them down the other end. But if you're a Celtic fan, you can't really cry too, too much or complain saying, oh, we got screwed, the referees are hosing us. Because look at the final you know, 16 minutes of that game. The Boston Celtics went to the foul line 16 times. The Milwaukee Bucks pulled the big donut as far as foul shots in the final 16 and a half minutes of that game. And the main reason they won this is because Giannis put that team on his back and said, boys, not today, not in my building. Yeah, I'm without my normal Robin and Chris Milton, who knows if or when we get him for this series. Wasn't getting a lot of help or the, you know big help from anyone teammate in particular, but they got saved by the fact that Jason Tatum had an awesome, an awful game, and let's face it, Jason Tatum, outside of the second half of game two of this series, has not played like the star that I've promoted him to be, like a lot of people think he should be, and you look at second half of game two, he puts up 19 points, shoots over 50% from the field, 50% from behind three-point for the other 12 quarters of this series, he has 41 points combined, is shooting um, just under 30%, and barely 30% from behind three. He's someone I'm going to be really watching for tonight because you have to figure he's motivated. You know, they've done all this talk about how him and Brown can finally play together. Well, Brown's done his part this series. But, you know, Jalen Brown can look himself in the mirror and realize, hey, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. He's, he's never going to call out his teammate. But now if the Celtics don't tie this thing up, we're looking at it ending in six games. If they don't get it done tonight in Milwaukee, yeah, 
They'll put a valiant effort up and, and eke by game five. But they will not win a, a game six in Milwaukee. Not with the mindset. Not with the determination that Giannis is playing with right now. Because you figured that there would be at least two games this series where Giannis put the team on his back and dragged them kicking and screaming across the finish line. You saw one of them on Saturday. You got to figure he's got at least one more of those in the tank for this series. All right, got to take a break here. Come back and talk about the Western Conference playoffs. But, hey, I got a lot on my mind this week. Going to give you some thoughts on the NFL with the schedule coming out on Thursday. (coughs) Excuse me. There's that cough again. Uh, Mixing some thoughts about Ryan Tannehill, the Cowboys. Uh, Of course, got to get to uh, baseball as we're a month into the season and some crazy things happening there. So a lot to talk about for this hour here. Uh, Glad you guys could join me. So please, at this time, sit back, relax, help. Put your feet up on the table if you feel like it. And continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping Sports with M3 on this Monday afternoon. So, talk about the Eastern Conference uh, side of the NBA playoffs in the first segment. Of course, got to give equal, fair you know, representation to the West where you, know, you have just as intriguing, maybe even more so, uh, storylines taking place over there where you know, tonight we will get Game 4 of the Warriors-Grizzlies series, which has been very feisty, very testy. Now, And this is the point in the series where, listen, you've seen the same team now for three to four games, and you're, quite frankly, sick of seeing them. You don't have to normally deal with this in the regular season. 
But these two teams, there's clearly some bad blood here. There's clearly some annoyance. Whether you know, it started in game one with uh, Draymond Green's uh, flagrant foul against Clark. But then game two is where it took on a whole different level, a whole different animal where, no, let's face it, Dylan Brooks went over the line. He, if any, you know, Draymond Green passed the line, he, his uh, foul was unnecessary in game one, but Dylan Brooks took it to a whole new level in game two. I've seen a lot of people suggest, oh, he should not have been ejected for his hit on uh, Gary Payton the second, that it was more so uh, an ejection because uh, Payton was hurt, that he was on the ground and wasn't able to continue in this game. No. Look at the play again. All right. Gary Payton the second was in midair and Dylan Brooks came (coughs) up behind him and hit him in the head with his arm and Dylan Brooks never left the ground. Dylan Brooks never tried. You know, this was not, oh, I'm making a failed attempt from behind to try and block the basketball. That was a clear shot to the back of the head. And with another player airborne like that, that was dangerous. That was, you know, something you had to eject him for. I mean, if you're going to eject Draymond Green for what he did in game one, grabbing the guy by the jersey and pulling him down while he's in midair, you definitely have to um, eject D- Dylan Brooks. Now, the suspension, the suspension was probably more so due to the injury and knowing that it was kind of a... Revenge factor, because Brooks did not like getting dunked on, getting posterized, as they say, um, by Gary Payton. And so he was <coughs> a little bit frustrated. He, he took out his anger there. But it was an unnecessary play. It was, and it was selfish. It, it was, you know, something where you were thinking more so about personal revenge than you were about the team because now he's one of their uh, best defensive players and in game one he kind of kept Steph Curry in check from um for most of this game in fact Curry was 0 for 7 from behind the arc with uh uh Dylan Brooks as his primary defender in uh, that game now they did get you know, a Heroic performance by John Morant to squeak by the Warriors, get the split at home. Mix in the fact that you had a rare night where Curry, Thompson, and Poole were awful from behind the arc. But it put the Grizzlies in a bad spot heading into game three because now Dylan Brooks whether you agree or disagree with the suspension, it was going to hinder them. And listen, maybe they don't lose by 30 in Golden State. Maybe they lose by 10 to 15 points. 
But now it's put them in a bad spot here because you look at what happened on Saturday night. Now, you figured that you were going to get a bounce-back performance by at least two of the big three there, or what they're calling Splash Brothers 2.0. But in the same vein, you suffered um, a uh, injury that made this loss even worse. And you could argue, you know, what the hell is John Morant doing in this game, in the fourth quarter, with your team down by 20, and he's essentially your only offense in this game. I mean, he could put his head to pillow that night knowing that he gave a big performance. He kept them in that game for as long as they possibly could. But at some point, Taylor Jenkins had to realize that there should be a white flag moment. Every coach needs to know when that white flag moment is. And he left his star out there too long to lead to him enduring another knee injury, something that was a problem for him during the season. And they're going to be without him for at least game four tonight. And now I'm not sure if you want to call this a dirty play by Jordan Poole. I mean, the... The Draymond Green play, the Dylan Brooks play, those are dirty plays. Draymond Green has developed his reputation. It is what it is. Dylan Brooks, I've never known him to be a dirty player, but that was a bad moment for him. But watching the replay of it, and I have a couple times here, initially it looked like Jordan Poole his knee collided with the back of John Morant's knee. And I think that is where the initial injury came. Now, everyone's going to look at it and say, oh, it was the grab. Well, you better be pretty damn strong if you're going to grab someone's knee like that and cause a strain. I didn't see the buckle there on that grab. I thought, as I said, it was more so a second or two prior to that when it looked like their knees collided uh, from behind Morant. And as we've seen a lot when it comes to injuries, there's always that delayed reaction. There's always that delayed of, oh, this is uh, causing me pain. This is uh, causing me some kind of issue here. So, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate set of events here for the Grizzlies as they go into Game four tonight without their star. Now, what works for them is the fact that this is not new territory for them. They have been here, played 25 games this season without John Morant, and went 20 and 5 in that. At one point, it was something insane, like 18 and 2 before the final couple of weeks of the season. But they know how to win, know how to be remain a competitive team without him. Hell, they played at times without both him and Brooks. Now, they're going to get Brooks back tonight, and he's got to be very careful because you can't go into this with a revenge mindset. You can't go into this saying, oh, we're going to get payback for John Morant. We're going to do something to Jordan Poole and get payback or do something to Steph Curry or something like that. 
because the league's going to be watching. They've seen the feistiness. They've seen the chippiness that's gone on in this series. They've seen how every game there's some kind of controversial incident, whether it's in the beginning of the game or in this case in the fourth quarter that led to John Morant's injury. So their antennas are up. And if you're Dylan Brooks, you already have a flagrant two on your record here. You know, that's two points. And remember, it's four flagrant points that lead to a suspension. You do something else you that leads you getting ejected. Not only are you thrown out of a game, but you're going to miss a game on top of that. So the Grizzlies' mindset has to be just win tonight. Get this even back up and get it back to with you guys having home court advantage. Because you know, at some point here, I've got to figure Clay Thompson is going to come alive and have a big game. He's been merely a role player in this. And you figured that this season that we weren't going to get the true extent of Clay Thompson. Still working his way back after what's been a two-year absence. Uh, from action. But at some point, this is a guy that's got a lot of pride. It's a guy that's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's a, a, a three-time NBA champion. You figure at some point, he's going to step up and have a virtuoso performance here. And when that happens, I don't think that there's anybody, at least in the West, that can take down this Warriors team. I've said it before. I've got to see Curry, Thompson, and Poole all play bad for four games in one series to believe that someone's going to take them down and stop them from getting back to the NBA Finals. And what makes their road a little bit easier is not just if they win tonight and take a commanding three games to one lead, but it's the fact that the one seed in uh, their conference, the Phoenix Suns, are now in for a dogfight against the Dallas Mavericks. Where early on it looked like, oh, this is going to be an easy series for the Suns. You know, because you know, you're getting big performances from Luka Doncic. You're getting, you, <laughs> you know <laughs> what to expect from him. Excuse me. You know what to expect from him. He averaged 40 in the first two games. He brought what he had to to the table. Now, defensively, he was a complete liability in uh, games one and two. But when this series shifted back to Dallas, two things happened. A, others stepped up. Jalen Brunson who was a non-factor in both games one and two, had a great game, once again showing signs of of the the awesome postseason that he's had, especially against the Jazz in the first round. But also, Chris Paul has been a non-factor for the Suns the last two games. Would it be in game three on what was supposed to be a celebratory uh, day for him, turning the uh, ball over seven times in uh, the first half, which is completely un-Chris Paul-like. 
or then in game four where he's in foul trouble um, in the first half, had four fouls in the first half and fouled out in the opening minutes of the fourth quarter and hinders the Suns because we've seen Chris Paul come alive in the fourth quarter of these games where he'll just be churning along, having you know, so-so performance for the first um, three quarters of a game. And all of a sudden, something sparks him, something um, unleashes in him, and he carries the Suns to a victory and wasn't able to have a, that shot, have that end-of-game opportunity because he had to watch the final nine minutes uh, yesterday from the bench. Now, of course, you mix that with the fact that Doncic, you know that you're going to get a dominant performance out of him every night. But each game, he's been getting another one of these others to step up. Now, mention Brunson in Game 3. Uh, Vinny Smith, Finney Smith, excuse me, uh, hit a, a couple of timely threes and uh, was that big secondary option for him uh, yesterday. And, now, here on there, you're getting a little something from Spencer Dimwitty, but he's um, not been exactly what I expected with the Mavericks. I thought that he was going to be that clear second guy, but you've seen a lot of times where he's uh, finishing these games uh, coming off the bench. But the, now, the Suns and their fans, they've been in for more of a dogfight than we, we could have ever expected here and you know maybe we should have been surprised by this because remember in the bubble Luca did the same kind of thing against you know Paul George Kawhi Leonard and uh the Clippers if not for some injury woes uh for the Mavericks in that series Maybe they pull off the upset and send the Clippers home from the bubble sooner than expected. Last year, they gave uh, them fits as well. So we shouldn't be shocked that the Mavericks are in this position. We've seen Luka do great things in the postseason so far in his young career. Remember, he does it without a real number two. He's in the same position that... Dirk Nowitzki was for his entire career there in Dallas, where he has dominant performances, but he just has no secondary uh, guy to uh, pick up the slack for him on a consistent basis. It didn't have it for Zingas, and now he's left with a bunch of role players on this team. Now, one more thing before I take a break here. I'm really getting disgusted with what we're seeing at these games by certain fan bases. What happened yesterday with Chris Paul's family being harassed or pushed, shoved, whatever it may be. His his wife, his mom uh, were there. His kids had to see this. It was disgusting. And I couldn't exactly tell the age of this fan that was being thrown out. But it it shows you that Chris Paul has a lot of man in him and a lot of control in himself. Because if that were me, I don't care how many people are in front of me. 
I'm pushing them all out of the way and getting to that SLB for harassing my family. Because this cannot happen. Now, how many times do I have to bring this up? Do you all remember March 11th, 2020? That was when the world shut down. That was when sports entertainment shut down. And for at least 11 months after that, we weren't at sporting events. We weren't at live entertainment events. And it feels like every time I turn around, now outside of the NHL, because it's nearly impossible for a fan to get on the ice, Every time I turn around, I'm seeing a fan do something stupid. I mean, for years, we've seen fans come onto the field in baseball. But you saw the embarrassing incident at Yankee Stadium a couple of year, couple of weeks ago with them throwing trash on the field at players from the Guardians. Last year, it seemed like every other night, there was a fan running down from the 10th row uh, to try and dance at midcourt. Hell, you've even seen at other live events, you know, look at Dave Chappelle got tackled by a fan last week uh, at a wrestling event uh, late last year. A fan came running down from the stands and attacked uh, WWE star Seth Rollins. And now this, we're going to be harassing um, family members from uh, the uh, opposing team. I mean, why can't we just be grateful to have sports back? Be grateful to have the ability to go to sporting events. That's what that 11-month period of not going to sports entertainment events should have taught us. Instead, constantly, left and right, we're seeing fans abuse their privilege. It's not a right. It's a privilege. You pay your hard-earned dollars to go to these games cheer what you like, boo what you like, you know, have playful back and forth uh, ripping with the opposing team's fan base, but nothing, you know, to the point where you're getting in a fight in the stands. I thought, you know, that Suns and Four guy last year was ridiculous. He shouldn't have been celebrated as much as he was. And that be it. Just go be a fan. Not, you know, the the ticket that you pay for or that you know a family member pays for and takes you to the game, it does not give you the right to be part of the action or make a jackass out of yourself from the stands and harass somebody, whether it's just a common fan for the other team or especially not if it's a family member from the other team. Come on, people. Let's do better. We should be above this. Going to take another break here, come back on the other side, turn my attention to the NFL, continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back.
Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder, Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping It Sports with M3 on this uh, lovely Monday afternoon. A lot better than it was over the course of the weekend. That's interesting. I'm in the midst of a five-day weekend here just to kind of help out my family. As my mom and sister Emily went down to the Bahamas for a couple of days. So since... The family has pets. Someone needed to be around to feed our dog, feed our cats, um, you know, clean the litter box, let the dog out, etc., etc. So I changed up my work schedule last week and did what we call a shift swap. Swapped out of working Saturday, worked last Tuesday, and then took Friday off with some of the paid time I have. So. I've, since late Thursday, I have been off doing this, as I've called it, a five-day weekend. And it's gave me a lot of time to catch up on uh, TV, some movies that I promised that I would uh, get around to. And, uh, you know, I thought I was going to be able to take my dog for a walk, but because there was bad weather here on the East Coast, it did not allow that help. Because of that, also forced a lot of uh, day-night doubleheaders uh, taking place in uh, baseball. We'll get to some thoughts on baseball a little bit later on. Because I wanted to get to the NFL here. One, there was a under-the-radar signing in uh, the NFL last week with the Saints signing Tyron Matthew, and you figured that this was going to be one of the top uh, secondary players signed in free agency. Kind of surprising that we're, what, a month and a half into the league year and that he was still on the board, still available for teams to sign. I know there was a mad rush on offensive skill players and offensive linemen in this uh, free agent period. But you figure that somebody, 
he would have signed Teron Matthew before we got to the month of May. And now uh, the, the Saints get kind of a bargain. They only got him on a two-year deal. And it's the second, what they hope, upgrade to uh, the safety position for them this offseason. As last month, they had signed the now former New York Jet, Marcus May, who's going to be coming off of an injury. We'll see what his availability is for them at the start of the season. And uh, now with uh, bringing uh, Tyron Matthew here, what they hope upgrades the safety room more. And, you know, the Saints, the Saints are an interesting team coming into this year because you know, if everything goes right for them, and I know we could say that about a lot of teams, but if everything goes right for them, they can make a run at the Buccaneers and that division. The Buccaneers, you know, the, who knows what the, the health status of uh, you know, Chris Godwin is going to be coming into next year. They're going to be, they've lost to some pieces in, to free agency and retirement. Uh, we still don't know if Gronkowski is going to uh, come back um, or not. So the Bucks are there to be had. And when you uh, look at the Saints, you know, we expect them to get Michael Thomas back. Uh, they just drafted Chris Olave. So you You've got your top two receivers there. You still got um, Alvin Kamara. The biggest key, of course, is going to be Jameis Winston's health because last year they got off to a five and two start before he got hurt. He was playing very well. Was oh, kind of playing complimentary football there, but he was not turning the football over like we had seen in the past, and looking like he could be a useful starting quarterback in this league, even without um, having Michael Thomas there for him in the, the seven games he played. Now, he is coming off of a, an ACL, and for a guy of his uh, size, you do uh, worry about that. And you do worry uh, that you're coming in with a new head coach, but yeah, it's a new head coach, but it's someone that's been on that staff in Dennis Allen. It's someone that has been a head coach in this league, albeit not with the greatest success, but we'll see how he does in his second go-around as a head coach. So the Saints are the Saints are a team that I don't think anyone should be sleeping on coming into this year. The the Bucks definitely should not be looking at it like it's going to be a cakewalk playing them as compared to what it probably will be when they go up against uh, the Panthers and the Falcons who look to be in rebuild modes there once again. Now, I saw that Stephen Jones, what a surprise, once again uh, did a uh, interview last week. He was on uh, the Pro Football uh, um, podcast with Mike Florio. Mike Florio, excuse me, damn cold. 
but he was on there uh, talking about how the Cowboys have not been as active in free agency this offseason. And it's kind of bit them in the butt in a couple of places because they've let some very you know, solid pieces go. You know, they've lost two members of their offensive line in Collins and Williams. They've lost Cedric Wilson, who is a very solid number three wide receiver option. And that coming on top of trading Amari Cooper to the Cleveland Browns. But probably the worst of all of these was they thought that they were going to have Randy Gregory back on that defense and two hours after their social media account announces that Gregory's going to be back with the Cowboys, he decides to renege on the deal and join the Denver Broncos. So it's not been a great offseason for the Cowboys. And you know, Stephen Jones was telling Mike Florio, quote, we just feel like if you have and we feel like our players are better, um, the better players out there, then that's who we'd like to spend on. You know, there's no surprises. Feel like if you can grow and get your homegrown players, we feel like that's where we've been most successful. We'll Certainly, we feel like we're going to get back in the mix of getting some of these players, these young players that we want to keep around here, get ahead of it and go sign them so you don't have the type of free agency we had this year. What we've seen in the past when you sign guys early, what that has done to you, what kind of problems that creates for you cap-wise. Remember Jalen Smith's contract or the hindrance at times that Ezekiel Elliott's contract has been, or the fact that you got rid of um, Amari Cooper, who, yeah, say what you want about him when it (coughs) comes to home games versus road games, but at least you know he's likely going to be available when the season starts. You can't exactly say that about Michael Gallup. So the, this has got a, kind of been a one step forward, two or three steps back off season for these Dallas Cowboys, especially when you look over the river here to the city of brotherly love and seeing what the Eagles are doing for Jalen Hurts. The fact that they went out there and traded a first round draft pick and got them selves a top-notch, top-flight wide receiver in A.J. Brown uh, for uh, Jalen to have as a, another big weapon. The fact that you still have Devontae Smith there, you still have your two good running backs there, you got uh, Dallas Goddard there. You improved uh, on your, your defensive line in uh, drafting Jordan Davis. Just like I mentioned before with the Buccaneers where it's not going to be a complete cakewalk in the NFC South, 
certainly not going to be a cakewalk for Dallas in the NFC East. And you better hope that you're right on these draft picks. You better hope that, oh, going and build your building within and just thinking that, oh, we can replace them with whatever guys we drafted works for you. Otherwise, you know, you're going to be looking up this year and saying, fly, Eagles, fly. Now, before I take a final break here, one thing that has been a big bone of contention, a debated topic over this last week, is comments from Titans quarterback Ryan Tannehill coming out of the draft. You remember, the Titans used a third-round draft pick on Malik Willis, who it surprised a lot of people that he slipped to the third round. There was some that thought he could have been a late first-round draft pick. Titans decided, hey, why the hell not? Let's uh, use a third-round pick and try to develop this guy. And as we've come to find out, Ryan Tannehill was not informed in advance of this uh, pick, of this selection. And he's had the following response to it, saying, quote, I don't think it's my job to mentor him. But if he learns from me along the way, that's a great thing. And people have been tearing him to shreds. People have been saying, oh, Ryan Tannehill's a bad teammate. You know, I've, I've seen the comments of Kurt Warner. I will never understand the I'm not a mentor to the next guy mentality. Saying that, oh, he'll be a mentor to these young quarterbacks uh, if they want LaShawn McCoy uh, coming out saying, if you don't want to be a mentor, I get it, but don't call yourself a, a good teammate. I've seen on television, uh, the former Steeler, Ryan Clark, ripping him. And I don't understand the criticism here. You know, when you first read the quote, I can understand why it looks bad, why it sounds bad. But to me, I think more people should be taking the approach that Steelers uh, head coach Mike Tomlin has to this. In when he was saying, you know, the development process is why they have offensive coordinators, why they have all these coaches on the staff. Those people are employed with the focus of developing players. He said uh, over the last couple of days, quote, certainly there's growth and developmental opportunities and learning opportunities among players, but it is definitely not. Uh, their function. Their function is to have themselves ready to go and be good teammates. And I think that's probably what you speak just in terms of providing common human decency and courtesy to someone if you can help them along the way. I'm sure Ryan is open to that, but I think he was just stating the obvious that he was not employed to do that. He's employed to play quarterback. And I completely agree with that. Listen, everyone got on Brett Favre's case for how he treated Aaron Rodgers. 
And there's no doubt about it. Brett Favre was not a good teammate to Aaron Rodgers. Comple seemingly gave him the cold shoulder the entire time they were together as teammates. That's why it's you know, stunning to see that those two are friends here in Favre's uh, post-playing career. But at the same time, Ryan Tannehill realizes even without A.J. Brown, he has got a team that has been to the playoffs multiple years in a row. A team that, if they get the right matchups and have you know, health all the way uh, through the year, they could possibly go to the Super Bowl. His main objective, his main goal, should be preparing how to win and how to be ready for 17 regular season games. Not sitting there and teaching this kid you know, how to play quarterback in the NFL. If you know, I'm sure if along the way Malik Willis, while watching practice, watching film, he's got questions, Ryan Tannehill will answer those questions, provide the best possible advice that he can for this kid. But his job is not to teach Malik Willis, not to prepare him to be the starting quarterback of the Titans possibly in a couple of years. Because then it takes all the focus off of what Ryan Tannehill has to do as far as getting ready for the season. He can't be of the mentality of looking over his shoulder, but he also can't be of the mentality of babysitting. He has to realize uh, that what's important for him is what he does on Sundays. And I get it. I get people not liking hearing it, but sometimes the truth, the truth hurts. Sometimes, you know, what, and sometimes when we read something, it comes off as completely worse than it really probably sounded. So, to, and the fact that you don't have a long diatribe here, long quote, I'm sure there was more to what Ryan Tannehill said. You know, the, the reporter probably just decided to take the bits and pieces that were going to create the most buzz and the most headline. And the fact that we're such a reactionary society these days, rather than just sitting back, taking a deep breath and realizing that, hey, you know, maybe on paper it looks bad, but he can't, ha he can't have the mentality of teaching this kid. That is what the coaching staff is there for. All right, going to take one final break. Come back, close things up with some thoughts on baseball with some weird things that have been uh, going on in that sport. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. 
Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. As some of you know, I have been highly critical of how baseball umpires will handle themselves at times. How, you know, they like to act like they're the third team on the field. Like to act that, oh, we're in some way there to see them make calls and that they are part of the show. Now, we've seen over the top strike three calls by from umpires like uh, CB Buckner. We've seen umpires instigate situations with players. I've even seen an an umpire oh, this had to be 2-3 years ago when John Lester was still on the Chicago Cubs. An umpire didn't like how John Lester received the baseball back and would actually come out from behind the catcher's spot and started to march toward the mound, pointing at Lester to the point where both the manager and the catcher had to hold the, the umpire back. And you know, these umpires seemingly are allowed to get away with it without any you know public shaming without any you know repercussions at least that we know about you know you never hear about an umpire getting suspended or getting the fines that they uh, get for some of the obnoxious stuff that they commit the o- the only things you hear about are oh Joe West getting in a confrontation with somebody or Angel Hernandez filing a lawsuit complaining that he's not getting big-time opportunities like postseason assignments. But last Wednesday had to be one of the weirdest things I've ever seen between an umpire and a player in Major League Baseball. I'm sure you know, a lot of you have either seen or heard about this story by now. But last Wednesday, after the first inning, Diamondbacks starter Madison Bumgarner was walking off the mound and as has become a common routine in the sport these days, oh, he gets his hands checked. He gets checked over to see if he's got any kind of illegal substance, any potential sticky stuff that is ruled illegal for a pitcher to use 
beyond what is uh, the common grounds uh, when it comes to oh, rosin. Like they, they now have two rosin bags out there for these uh, pitchers to use. And supposedly they are working on something that will be viewed as kind of a universally agreed upon thing between both pitchers and hitters so that they're not getting the upgraded spin rate on the, the ball that the some of these pitchers were unfairly getting. But Bumgarner's getting his hands checked. He's walking off the mound. And it was probably the most awkward of hand checks we've ever seen as umpire Dan Bellino is rubbing his hand down for like a full five to 10 seconds while staring him the entire time. Bumgardner is kind of like looking away from him. I guess Bumgardner said something to him as he walked off and Dan Bellini throws him out of the game. Now listen, Madison Bumgarner at times has had some of the worst posturing and worst antics on the mound of a pitcher. When I say antics, you can tell when he's showing up a home plate umpire with him staring a guy down. Hell, there's video out there of when he was still with the Giants, a confrontation or a near confrontation between him and Joe West where they're standing there staring at each other for a good 30, 40 seconds before finally the catcher has to stand up and be like, all right, guys, enough of this crap. Let's continue on with the, the game here. We've seen Bumgarner where he'll intently stare at a home plate umpire if he doesn't like the strikes that he's getting called. But that was clear instigating by Dan Bellino to try and get a rise out of Bumgarner. Now, Bumgarner does have to control his emotions a little bit better. does have to be, you know, in check with himself. But I thought that was just as unnecessary a an action as we've seen from an, an umpire. Will it be home plate, whatnot? I know he was the crew chief for that because it's usually always the crew chief that is doing the check um, of these pitchers. And he came out with a, a public statement in the last couple of days, almost an apology, saying that he is embarrassed by his actions. And while he does deserve a second chance, he doesn't deserve to get fired by this, he does deserve some public shaming. We deserve to know what kind of repercussions, excuse me if I can pronounce that correctly, we deserve to know what kind of repercussions that are going to come this guy's way as far as fines, suspensions, whatever it may be. He has to serve some kind of suspension, whether you know it's a week, whatever it may be, whether he gets taken off potential assignment from the postseason, even if he's a high-graded uh, umpire this year, whatever that may be, because something like this is not justified, it's not called for, and it's just outright ridiculous if you ask me.
What's also ridiculous is this stat that I heard last week, excuse me, going into last week, the start of May, it was the first time in baseball history that the Yankees, the Mets, the Dodgers, and the Angels were in first place by more than a game in their divisions all at the same time. Now, people are making a big deal out of this, saying, oh, it's never happened before where the the two team, each of the two teams from the, the two markets, New York and L.A., have been in first place at the same time um, th- at this point or any point in a season. And to that, I say, calm the hell down. The Anaheim Angels are as much a part of L.A., as the Buffalo Bills are New York City. You can put whatever name you want in front of it. Until you're actually playing in that city, I'm not even going to acknowledge your existence as part of that. But you look at each one of these teams and the starts that they've gotten off to. The Mets, the first team in baseball to 20 wins. And they have a commanding lead, albeit early, over everybody in their division and have a chance to really beef up things this week playing the Nationals. What's different about this Mets team compared to past years is you're seeing them win games the way that they normally used to lose games. You know, they're getting that good break on the bounce of the baseball. Like a couple weeks ago when they came back from down 2 nothing against the Cardinals and scored five runs with two outs in the ninth inning. That was a lot of that opening was thanks to a boneheaded play by Nolan Arenado when he probably should have just pocketed the ball and lived for the next batter. Or take last Thursday, for example. The Mets had not come back from trailing by six runs entering the ninth inning in 25 years. The last time they did that, uh, it was right around the time that they were looking to trade for Mike Piazza. Hell, the last time they did that, I think I was in the third grade, if I've got it correctly. That was... uh, the spring of 1997, whatever it may be. And the last time the Phillies blew that kind of lead in the ninth inning was back in 1994. And it's led Joe Girardi to calling it the worst loss of his managerial career. But the Mets, you know, they used to be the team that is blowing these kind of games. That's losing in these kind of weird, goofy fashions. And, Who knows, it still could happen. But so far, so good for them. They are overcoming the that's why we're the Mets kind of scenarios. And, you know, every day finding a new way to win. You know, like take yesterday. They've got a doubleheader, which was, was commonplace in baseball over this week. Scherzer gives up nine, ten hits in the first game. And they lose a close game to the Phillies. You have Bassett on the mound for the second game. 
and he goes out there and shuts down Philadelphia. That, along with the fact that uh, Pete Alonso had two bombs and drove out, uh, drove in five runs, including that second home run that, you know, damn near thought he was going to hit it out of Citizens Bank ballpark. But the, it's a different feel for this Mets team this year. You know that they're making the right moves on the field. Hell, they're making the right moves off the field. Now they're not a complete product. Hell, they they're still waiting the return of what they hope is the best pitcher in baseball in Jacob Degrom. And when I look at them, I I still think they could uh, stand. <laughs> to add a relief pitcher as well as add possibly a bat to that team somewhere. But the Mets are off to a very good start in the season. The Yankees, you figured they were going to finally lose a game eventually. They were on that 11-game streak. Figured at some point Toronto was going to stand up for themselves and and get a win there up in uh, Canada but the most surprising thing that has happened for the Yankees in the last couple of days is that yesterday we realized Michael King is in fact human. He is going to give up runs this year. He, he was on that insane streak where he hadn't given up a run um, in, well, like 18 innings. And you figured that at, at some point he was going to give up a run. Hell, Garrett Cole can give up a run on a home run in uh, the first game. You damn sure uh, better expect uh, Michael King, um, who I like a lot in this role that he's serving out of the bullpen, and still have a lot of faith that next time out there he's going to get the job done. But you figured at some point he was going to show a human side of him, and that you know the Yankees were going to lose a game or two here, but they still sit here with <coughs> a multi-game lead in the the AL East. The Dodgers, (laughs) of course, have the lead over the Padres in the West or in the NL West, but the the most surprising of these four teams is definitely going to be the Anaheim Angels, who are off to a 19-11 start. And... Now, every year, people are predicting the Angels to do big things because of Trout, because of Otani, and I'm always in a wait-and-see approach with uh, the Angels because as good as Trout and Otani are, it takes 26 players on a roster. It takes nine guys in your starting lineup to get the job done. Trout can hit you know, 340 and jack 40 bombs all he wants, but the team uh, could still lose 90 games based on the lack of talent that we've seen around him over the years. Hell, Otani had a, a historic year um, on the mound and at the plate, but he uh, still uh, um, is only one guy and showed a human side to him uh, uh, in the... Uh, the uh, second half and showed has showed a human side to him that he's not just some robot at the plate so far this year. I do expect him to uh, pick it up, but even with the historic year he had, 
they were still an under 500 club. Well, they've gotten off to a not just a great start record-wise, but offensively. Now, I talked about with the Mets how they're always finding ways to win. Angels doing that same thing. And you, you look at the numbers offensively. They're 7th in average, 5th in on-base percentage, 4th in slugging. Of course, our New York Yankees are number 1. And 5th in run differential in this league. And usually they're in the bottom half of that. But you mix that, the fact that they're getting somewhat middle of the pack starting pitching. And they only have about a 3.55 ERA uh, so far this year. But they're 6th in whip. And Otani has been great on the mound. Now, as I said, his bat has been a little bit slow. He's got four home runs, but is not hitting a whole lot besides that. But it, it has been a impressive start for the Angels, who of these four teams, I s- still have to see more from them to truly believe them. I knew, I've looked at the Yankees, Mets, and Dodgers coming into this year and said, they're healthy, they're all playoff teams. The Angels, I got to see this through the full year, especially, you know, as things go on here and they stay in first place, you're going to want to see Otani pitch more. And is that going to affect his, you know, availability as far as being in the lineup each and every single day? Because I I think they still go with this routine of giving him either the day off the day before or day after whenever he pitches and I've long been of the mindset at, at some point, as cool as this is to see, you might have to just stick with one to truly get the best out of him. What you're not seeing the best out of right now is the Boston Red Sox, who are off to a very slow start in their season. And you, you figured that they would get off to a slow start in some ways, because of the fact that they're without their ace, Chris Sale. He was put on the 60-day IL right at the beginning of the season due to a rib injury. But now they're going to be without him for a little while longer uh, due to a medical setback that they're saying is not baseball-related, not you know, related to the rib the initial rib injury is more of a medical setback. I don't know if it's some kind of illness or whatnot. But the big problem with the Boston Red Sox is outside of JD Martinez, Xander Bogarts, and Rafael Devers, who for the most part have carried their weight offensively, this Red Sox lineup is outright terrible. This Red Sox lineup, it looks like they're running out there a bunch of minor leaguers. And you look at it, they are 26th in uh, OPS. They're 28th in runs scored at just barely three runs per game. They only have 16 home runs uh, so far this year, and that's 28th in baseball. And their big issue from last year, which was their chase rate, when it comes to swinging at pitches outside the zone, 
has carried over. Last year, it was at 30.2%. This year, it's up to 32%. And <laughs> listen, we still got a long time to go here in this season. And there's still plenty of time for them to wake up. But offensively, they have been, you know, quite frankly, an embarrassment compared to what they were last year. I mean, was last year just an anomaly, uh, an anomaly, however it's pronounced? Uh, and they were going off the emotion of having Alex Cora back, going off of the high of having him back, the fact that they were fourth in runs per game, uh, top 10 in the majors in the home runs, and had the third best OPS in the sport. Now, you know, they look like a shell of that. Now they they just, they, they look like what you would have thought they were going to be after they traded Mookie Betts away. They're, they're looking, I, I don't want to say they're looking as bad as they did in the pandemic shortened season. But it's not good there up in Boston. And quite frankly, right now, it brings a smile to my face. Not a lot of things outside of the Yankees and sports bring a smile to my face. But that city, while I'm sure there's very nice people up there, cannot do enough losing for my liking. Whether it be you know, what the Red Sox are going through, or the Boston Celtics being down 2-1 to the Milwaukee Bucks and me having to watch Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown turn into stars, both of whom were draft picks given to them in that awful KG Paul Pierce trade that Billy King made um, oh so many years ago. Or, you know... The Patriots getting blown out by the Buffalo Bills. It made a friend of mine happy, and it makes me happy every time I see that begrudging, angry look on Bill Belichick's face. I mean, in fact, the only thing that is going well for Boston sports right now is the fact that the Bruins have won the last two games and gotten things tied up with the Panthers, creating at least some kind of scare for the Panthers before what they hope is... You know, an eventual cakewalk over the winner of the Penguins-Rangers series. But like I said, the city of Boston could not do enough losing as far as I'm concerned. And that is something that truly brings a smile to yours truly's face. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 from Monday. May 9th, 2022. Everyone, please have a great night. Have a great rest of your week. Stay safe, stay healthy. Have fun with whatever you're going to be doing this week. And I'll talk to you guys again same time next week. Until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.